This is ETS on the Grid. I am your host, Dylan Lockwood. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Aaron Hardick. Aaron, how's it going today? It's going well, Dylan. I've been back in Austin for a few days post-road trip, which we're about to get into, but I'm happy to be home. Um, We were gone for about five days, which is a long time. I have a little bit of a tickle in my throat trying to get reacclimated to this Austin weather, but... Um, I'm doing well overall. Later on in the episode, you'll hear our interview with Austin Energy's Electric Vehicle Program Manager, Lindsay McDougall. But first, as you just mentioned, Aaron, uh, you and our colleague Aaron Otan just completed a road trip around Texas uh, in a Tesla. We featured that last week, but just now that the trip's over, how was it? How did it went? You know, pretty well. I have to admit, Aaron and I both were getting a little nervous leading up to it. You know, this is something that neither of us had never really done before now I mean I've taken plenty of road trips across Texas whether that was with my family when I was younger and a few with my friends in college but I've never done it in an electric vehicle and neither she or I had ever driven an electric vehicle before either so there was a lot of firsts for us but overall it was a very pleasant experience Um, we got to stop and visit a lot of small West Texas towns and Aaron and I are kind of both these small town enthusiasts so we enjoyed walking around and kind of seeing some of that history there but I'm like I said I'm happy to be back. (laughs) Did you you have a favorite story or or anecdote from the trip? Well we stopped in this small town called Iran Texas which is about uh, five to six hours west of San Antonio or Austin on I-10. It's about a population of around a 1,000, maybe a little bit less, actually. So very small town. We had to stop there because we needed to charge our Model 3, and there's actually a single Level 2 charging station in this town, Iran. So the story of this town is kind of funny, Dylan. It was formerly part of the Yates oil field. And then I believe somewhere in the 70s, Ira and Ann Yates dedicated part of the oil field to make this small town, which they actually ended up having a contest within the town to decide what they were going to name it. And somebody submitted the name. I I ran with two A's in the middle, naming it after Ira and Ann. So that's just a small anecdote, but... Anyway, Ira Yates, um, who actually lives in Austin today, decided that he wanted to put a Tesla Level 2 charger out there because he drives out there, and and I'm assuming he drives a Tesla and needed a place to charge. So we got to stop and charge there. But the other kind of quirky thing about this town is they have this very small town park, which they call uh, Fantasyland. And in Fantasyland is a single wind turbine blade uh, that was dedicated by, I believe, AEP, um, just kind of with a plaque that describes wind energy and its relationship to West Texas. And then also in Fantasyland is Denny the Dino. It's like this huge dinosaur statue that they've actually like built steps up on that you can sit on top of and kind of just like look out and see the plains of West Texas, but um, I believe the reason Denny is in there is because uh, some gentleman who created this comic strip alley-oop about this caveman and his pet dinosaur, Denny, their adventures, um, it was created in Iran. So they just have this funny little park with this (laughs) dinosaur um, and this wind turbine blade, and we walked around there for about an hour and just had such a great time. It was quite the experience. That's awesome. The The eight-year-old boy in me just really loves the idea of a dinosaur statue you can like climb on. That's that's something I'm just going to have to see at some time. And another thing, um, one, one fun thing you can do as a, when you're trying to grab someone's attention about, about the road trip, you can lead with the headline with no context. Yeah, we drove to uh, Iran and... So it's pronounced. Is that how it's pronounced? It's not like Ira Ann. No, it's pronounced Iran. Huh. Learn something new every day. 
Well, so we talked last week about how West Texas taught you uh, about the limits and potentials for EVs and communities of various sizes, but we didn't really get into your discussions with industry experts all over the state. So uh, tell our listeners a a bit about what you discussed with some of the utilities and what their EV programs look like. Yeah, so aside from, you know, checking out the charging infrastructure and just really documenting our experience on this road trip, we did talk to um, people at executives at utilities and what their EV programs were like. We talked to CPS Energy, um, Pertinalis Electric Cooperative, and El Paso Electric. And those conversations were largely centered around the roles they see EV playing within their service territory and within their own business. So what do they expect, you know, customer adoption of EVs to be like in the future and how are they accounting for that? And then also how are they leveraging EVs within their own fleet? For instance, we talked to Pertinalis Electric Cooperative, Julie Parsley, uh, the CEO there, they only have about three EVs in their fleet, which is significantly smaller than a lot of metropolitan or uh, utilities that serve metropolitan areas. But that's because PEC's service territory is massive. It's like 8,000 square miles or something like that. And EVs just aren't really a viable option for their employees because they're driving long distances pretty consistently and the range for EVs just isn't there. So they're exploring, you know, a few ways they can leverage EVs. They have three that they allow employees to use when they commute to kind of some of these smaller towns in their service territory, but they're not using them all day. And then the other thing they do provide are charging stations for employees that personally own EVs and commute to Johnson City to work because a lot of people that work in kind of the offices in Johnson City for Pertinalis Electric Cooperative, they don't necessarily live there. Johnson City is, again, a pretty small town, the town itself, but PEC serves such a a larger service territory. A lot of the employees that work there will commute and drive their EV in the morning, charge it during the day, drive it back home at night and then when we talk to El Paso Electric they're doing something really interesting they have about 17 EVs in their fleet um, but they're also looking at how electrification can transform other areas of the business and other assets as well so they've installed these electric motors in their bucket trucks because they're much quieter and no longer requires the crew to run the diesel truck to use the bucket to get up to the line. You can now turn the truck off and use that electric motor to hoist or, I don't know, the appropriate uh, help propel the bucket up. And that creates, you know, safer work environments because it's significantly less noisy and you can communicate with the guy who's or the person who's up in the bucket and when you're on the ground. And it also creates a better working environment um, for the communities because they're not dealing with the noise and not to mention you're, you know, reducing emissions and saving uh, costs on diesel that's not used. So we just uh, really talked about how EVs are going to play into the short-term and long-term strategy of some utilities. As someone who lives in a tall building, I appreciate, I, I would very much appreciate that because a lot of those like, uh, like cherry pickers, they'll show up to power wash the brick, the brickwork on the outside of the building and it'll just be those diesel engines will be making a lot of noise at six in the morning. So yeah, if that's, if that could become more standard, I would really appreciate that. Um, you talked to Pedernales, El Paso, and uh, CPS. Are any of them, or do any of those cities have uh, electric buses by any chance, to your knowledge? So Aaron, based on your experience with the road trip, what issues should utilities have front of mind when designing EV programs? Honestly, Dylan, it may seem redundant, but education, there is just this very large 
stigma around what an EV is. I think that a lot of people, when they think about an electric vehicle, they kind of imagine, or at least here's what I imagine. Did you ever see that movie with Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg and they were policemen? The other guys? Um, the other guys. Yeah. And Will Ferrell was just like this nerdy policeman and he drove a Prius and he was just kind of like the loser nerdy guy. And I think that that stereotype or that stigma is still what kind of surrounds electric vehicles, this idea of like there are these kind of like nerdy cars that, you know, a few people bought Priuses. And that's what a lot of people, not to, you know, hate on the Prius, but it doesn't have the adoption that I think that they were expecting. And and that's what people think when they when they hear electric vehicle. And that's not necessarily true these days. You have so many different makes and models of, of EVs. Um, that have a lot more capabilities and they're fun to drive and the design is comfortable inside. So there needs to be a lot more education just around what EVs are today and what their capabilities are outside of just reducing environmental impacts. For instance, um, EVs, their acceleration is much quicker because they're (laughs) because they're an electric motor and that can actually contribute to safety in many ways and they they de- decelerate i think that's a word um they slow down much quicker too uh and then a lot of these evs are being uh a lot of evs are also going to be avs autonomous vehicles and they have um for instance our tesla and tesla's uh the manufacturer that's most popular has put the most uh, research and development into this, but autopilot is essentially just very advanced assisted driving today. Um, It keeps you in the center of the lane. It slows down if you get too close to someone. Um, It tells you, you know, if you can change lanes to go faster, be safer. Uh, So generally, I think it just actually contributes to a safer uh, environment, some of these cars. And I I don't think that that message is being put across in the way it should. So I think utilities can just focus on continuing to communicate uh, the environmental aspect, but looking in other areas to, you know, kind of entice some residents to adopt EVs. Yeah, I sort of get your sort of get your other guys reference in that it's kind of electric vehicles seem kind of sci-fi especially when you start talking about autonomous driving and stuff like that and so you gotta I mean, some of the, and the car the car manufacturers themselves have been pushing that kind of sci-fi angle hard a lot of the early teslas are basically like look it's the it's got the doors from back to the future and uh have you seen those volkswagen electric van commercials no those, i have not well they're they're really something the way they tone that it's definitely contributing to that sense of the electric vehicle as something sleek and sci-fi and futuristic which is really cool uh to people like to people like you and me who not only pay attention to the industry but also are gigantic nerds when it comes to (laughs) sci-fi and futuristic technology so I guess there's no large there's no larger point. I guess I just didn't realize that as sort of a trend until you pointed it out just now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it, I don't think that it needs to be like positioned in this very like sci-fi-ish way. So we had this conversation with Ashley Horvat at Green Lots. But like with young people, it's funny that you say that because I um, there was a Tesla. There's Teslas like all around Seattle area where I live, and there was a Tesla in front of me, and um, I was in our lease. And no joke, the kid did not even look at my car, <laughs> but he, looked, he he was walking home from school and it was like, he, just, you know, that meme that has like the girl that the guy looks at and he, he's with his girlfriend. It was like that meme because he, <laughs> he looked at the Tesla and he had his headphones in and he was walking home from school and he literally gave this Tesla like the most double take. And I mean, they're everywhere. Like a couple of the kids walking behind him didn't really look because their parents probably have one, but um, like I see that with teenagers where they love Teslas. And when I used to drive the plug share, when I worked for plug share, I drove, you know, the company Tesla and I would just get looks from kids like all the time, teenagers, you know, like 12 year old young kids. So yeah, I love, I love that effect on, on like with the Tesla's awesome. And I think that's really because, you know, Tesla's, they have, 
you know they have like they have that cooler vibe they um the design is sleeker you know they look yeah elon made it to be more futuristic but i think it's just kind of starting to look at how evs can be designed to look kind of like these cooler you know cars that you know everybody would be interested in driving it's uh, right now i think a lot of people would still just ignore the Nissan Leaf, but we need people to buy Nissan Leafs. We need people to, you know, buy other types of EVs. Not everybody's going to buy a Tesla, but all those EVs need to be cool and not just, not just Teslas. And that, that's sort of the, the vibe that the, that the Volkswagen electric van is go, kind of going for. If, you know, if it ever comes out, it's been coming out for like three years. Um, but uh, the design is supposed to be super, super retro, but also with like sort of a more compact, sleeker design, but still sort of uh, reference at the very least paying homage to the Volkswagen vans of old. So I think one thing that may help the the image of electric vehicles going forward is just that there are going to be more types of electric vehicles. So there will be people who want that sleeker, cutting edge design. There are people who will want the smaller electric sedan that just looks like every other mom car they've ever owned or you know they'll want something intentionally retro like once once more options are available for for prospective buyers perhaps some of that stigma that you're talking about will fold away i think that's coming pretty soon i think most major car manufacturers that have announced that they're investing and doing r&d and electric vehicles expect to have at least five to seven new makes or models um, available by 2020. Uh, So that's just next year. I know for certain uh, that Toyota did that. I recently saw a presentation um, on how they plan to expand their electric vehicle options. So hopefully um, that will help adoption increase. And that's just, you know, 12 months away, not even. Yeah, and another thing that'll help is once um, once electric vehicles, some of them are old enough to be able to start getting passed down through the, through the secondary market, like years after the fact, you can buy them used, they might start becoming more affordable. Although I don't know how, what the actual battery life is on like a Tesla Model 3 or even a, or even a Nissan Leaf from like 2014. Well, that's the thing. You can start to take, you can replace the battery on those and then it's like you're driving a brand new car um, because they don't have the regular wear and tear associated with a nice vehicle. So um, I think, yeah, used EVs will definitely be a game changer, but those are difficult right now. And I know that there's a lot of questions around how to appropriately price used EVs. Um, So that's definitely another challenge to figure out. But I agree. Um, I think a lot more people will buy them. Waiting for the next innovation from Kelly Blue Book, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Tell me, when and where is the next road trip? I know you have plans to do more. So we're going to do part two of the Texas road trip. Where we, s- we still need to go to kind of East Texas. So we'll hit um, Navasota, um, Dodge, Dodge, Texas, um, Houston, some of the cities surrounding or some of the Uh, towns and communities surrounding the Houston area Um, we're still trying to figure it out and that'll be about two or three weeks from now so we're still taking suggestions on where to go but uh, we hope to you know do maybe a second one in a different state or who knows Dylan maybe internationally Uh, we're kind of open we'll see Welcome back. Today on the show, we have a very special guest. She is an electric vehicle program manager at Austin Energy. Please welcome Lindsay McDougall. How are you doing, Lindsay? I'm good. Thank you. How are you, Dylan? I'm doing good. It's uh, great to talk to you again. It's been it's been a while since we had that spatial data panel way back at way back in at ETS in April. How have you been since then? Good. Really busy. Lots of things going on. I, I uh, spoke at a conference in Washington, D.C. recently and um, just 
just busy, busy at work. Know how that goes. Uh, so, you know, we, we talked earlier in the show about uh, the EV road trip we went on. I, I believe you're kind of familiar with that. Uh, and so we've been we've been talking a lot about EVs this month. What do you do as the program manager in Austin? And what drew you to working in EV infrastructure? So I oversee all of the electric vehicle incentive programs that Austin Energy offers, um, particularly the, the operational side of things, because we have rebates and a lot of daily work with our questions from our community and um, connection requests from drivers to get connected to our plug in everywhere network. So I oversee a staff of two employees who do all the day-to-day work to make our programs run and to keep our EV community happy and growing. I was drawn to electric vehicles um, partly because of my education background. I have a degree in environment and resource management, so I'm very passionate about environmental conservation. And electric vehicles present a huge opportunity to cut carbon emissions and save the planet. I have a, a daughter, and I'm, I'm very interested in, in, her, in her inheriting a, a healthy planet for, for herself and her potential children. And um, I, I think electric vehicles are really cool. And um, I, I used to work more on the water side of environmental conservation, and and that's great and all. But honestly, I just think electric vehicles are are neater. They're they're sexier. They're cool. They um, that cars are are really appealing to people, and there's a lot of neat technology that goes into it. And electric vehicles are fast and fun, and that really attracts me. And from a career standpoint, they have the potential to make our utility lots of money. So there's a good business case for working with it. So I, I feel like it's just a good place to be overall. Do you own an electric vehicle? I do. I own a 2014 Nissan Leaf and I love it. So Lindsay, you talked about you know the EV community here. From your experience, what do Austinites demand from their EV programs or what do you think draws Austinites to participate in EV programs as well as, you know, adopt electric vehicles themselves? Well, um, in Austin, we are known as being green. So a lot of our customers want to do their part to save the environment and they feel a big connection to the community. Um, we, Austin Energy is a community-owned utility. We are a department of the city of Austin. So I think there's some comfort in that we are providing that messaging and, and those programs that they, they feel a part of a greater community and that they're doing something good for the planet and their own community. And they... They just they want to be a part of it. We have the Plug in Everywhere network where drivers can access unlimited charging for only $4.17 a month. And we have people that barely ever use it, but they just want to be a member. They just want to they just want to contribute to that. And, you know, it gives them the peace of mind to be able to charge in public. But really, they just they want to they want to support us and in our initiatives. And when we offered our um, electric vehicle subscription rate program, EV360, we had so much interest um, right off the bat. Um, the first day we offered a sign-up form, we had 50 people interested in, and interested in it, and um, you know, not all 50 people ended up with the program, but they wanted to hear about it, and they wanted to express interest and support in that kind of offering from the utility. And we we ended up capping that program at 100 participants, but I'm up to over 500 interest submissions for that. So there's there's definitely more interest than we have enrollments available at this time. But again, that just speaks to people wanting to be involved and and wanting to get on our notification list and and wanting to be a part of the Plug in Everywhere community. Um, we have a lot more stations outside of our Plug in Everywhere network now in Austin, like EVgo, for example. And we have customers that 
that express total disinterest in, in using those stations. Customers want operational charging stations and they demand low-cost home charging. They, they feel like they should have access to low-cost nighttime electricity and we try to provide that. So Aaron, you mentioned this a bit earlier and also Aaron Otan talked about it in our previous episode that education plays a, a key piece in, in electric vehicles going forward, at least from the utility side. Not just about what EVs are, but also how you can make your ownership as simple and painless as possible. Lindsay, you said to me once that uh, one of the hardest parts of implementing EV programs is customer buy-in. Um, how do you handle like public outreach, marketing, and education in the plans for your programs? Well, first and foremost, just having staff available at Austin Energy in-house that can really provide a customer experience. Caitlin Bullock and Nathan Richardson answer countless calls a week from people who have just purchased an electric vehicle and they call Austin Energy and they just want to know what Austin Energy has to offer. And the staff goes above and beyond that that question. And not only do they explain our programs in details, but they offer, you know, advice on charging station locations and, and traffic tips and, um, you know, casual conversation about the vehicle purchase to get the customer to feel excited about what just happened with their, with their electric vehicle purchase and make them feel welcomed by by the electric vehicle community and and reassure them that Austin Energy will will be there with products and programs through the lifetime of their vehicle ownership. Um, we have a dedicated staff member who deals directly with marketing, um, Bobby Godsey, and he develops um, a lot of outreach initiatives and he works directly with our very professional Austin Energy marketing staff that treats us more like clients. So we can come to them with ideas and they dream up these fantastic marketing products for us to, to put out into the community. We also have a dedicated staff member who works for low to moder moderate income communities and schools, EVs for schools. That's Amy Atchley. And we now have charging stations at four Austin ISD campuses where um, students and teachers can access the station and, and learn dedicated electric vehicle curriculum developed through that program. Um, another important aspect of the outreach is dealerships. And um, to this day, we haven't been able to get much momentum with the dealerships. Unfortunately, they are notorious for being poor at electric vehicle education, um, even as bad as uh, dissuading potential electric vehicle drivers from purchasing an electric vehicle and being shown other conventional vehicles instead. But I think that's changing. Um, we know of one one company who's partnered. Uh, it's a it's an electrical company that installs charging stations. They've partnered with local dealerships to provide more charging station assistance and and outreach at the point of purchase at dealerships. And um, we've actually been working with Bloomberg Philanthropies with. Um, a grant of both staff and potentially money to to address the dealership issue. So we we definitely have the dealerships on the horizon. It's it's vitally important to electric vehicle adoption to get that education at the point of sale. You know, I've been you know attending conferences and a lot of talks over the past year or so, and I've heard some representatives from major car manufacturers speak about the plans to roll out more or different types of makes and models of electric vehicles. I believe um, Dylan, we talked about this earlier in the show, but Toyota definitely has plans to roll out, I think, a five to seven different electric vehicle types within the next three years. Some are saying, you know, within the next 12 years, we could have five uh, new different types of EVs available. Do you think, uh, Lindsay, that um, the 
choices and increasing the options of choices of electric vehicles will help drive adoption um, and get the dealerships more on board with uh, Austin Energy's values and alignment along along EVs. Do you think that that's going to have a major impact? Absolutely. People primarily purchase vehicles based on the way the vehicle looks and how they feel driving that look of vehicle. Um, my my dear husband, for example, loves driving pickup trucks. We have absolutely no need to own a pickup truck. We have no trailer to tow. We have no dirty equipment to put in the bed. We have a hard time fitting our child's seat in the back seat, but he will not budge on that truck ownership. Um, so if we have electric pickup trucks in the Texas market, of course people are going to be more willing to adopt that vehicle. Um, vehicle manufacturers need to make compelling vehicles that are electric, um, cars that people already want to buy in an electric version. Um, right now, I heard it's pop women really love the, the crossover style, so we need to have electric crossovers. Um, you know, my, my 2014 Nissan Leaf looks like a, an electric car. It looks like kind of spacey and bubbly. And, um, that's not very appealing to a lot of people. Um, I, I find it adequate. It's, it's okay looking, but I drive it for my environmental values and to support my career objectives and because it's fun. It's really fun to drive, but that's not the majority of people. So yes, I, I absolutely believe that when there's more options for drivers and when manufacturers create the cars that people want to drive in an electric version, yes, adoption will increase. Your anecdote about women driving crossovers, I mean, that certainly rings true to me. I drive kind of like a crossover, a traditional ICE vehicle, but it's a crossover style car. Mm -hmm. And then our coworker, actually, Aaron Otan, recently purchased a hybrid crossover. But while we were on the road trip, she actually found out that the hybrid that she purchased, they actually make an all EV version. However, that version had just come out when she was purchasing her car. She didn't really hear about it. And there's mm -hmm. very limited availability around it. But she was saying that retrospectively, she would have gone with the full EV version because she really liked the look of the car. She liked, like you said, she liked the way it drives and um, her primary reason for trying to, you know, purchasing a hybrid or considering an EV was the environmental impact. So I agree with you. I think that there needs to be, you know, different types of uh, makes and models of EVs because people have this notion of the kind of car that they want to drive and the way it looks when they're driving it and the feeling they get when they're driving it. We were also out in Midland for the road trip, so there's a ton of trucks there now. <laughs> I'm going to assume that they actually use those trucks for their utility purpose, put a lot of dirty stuff in the back and haul mm -hmm. it across big, yeah. big fields. But they, most of the public we talked to there, we asked, you know, if there was an electric pickup truck, would you consider that? And they said yes, but until then, it's just not really an option for them. Right. Yeah. And it, and it is improving. Like I, I've seen the, um, the Subaru crossover now has a plug-in model. That's really exciting, but you, you have to, you have to do the consumer research and, and possibly have it shipped from California. They're not available in all markets. So yeah, when that, when that changes there, there will be an increased interest and, in, and in subsequent adoption. So we've talked a lot about, you know, the Austin community. And I do think that Austin is a little farther ahead in terms of EV adoption. I see quite a few electric vehicles on the street when I'm walking around. But Lindsay, you also mentioned that you, I believe, were just at a conference in D.C. And so you go other to other places and discuss EVs there. Um, when you're talking to other utilities around the country, what are the main issues that you see or hear them talking about and kind of what are the, some of the conversations you're having with them based off what's going on in maybe their service territory and what's going on here in Austin? 
You hear of utilities either trying to initially launch their electric vehicle program, so starting from nothing to, to how to gain momentum to have something, some public, some public charging station network, some EV make ready rebate, something like that. Or I see a lot on the other end of the spectrum where you have utilities more advanced with their electric vehicle programs, similar to Austin Energy, trying to take the next step. And that's usually with the time of use rates or, or like our EV360, it's a subscription rate. And so utilities are trying to really understand their customer base and how to design a correctly priced rate program and how to get proper stakeholders and, and community involvement to launch a program like that. So I specifically talk a lot about EV360 when I'm talking to other utilities. A lot of questions I get regarding that is the technical um, integration side of things, like how, how we pull that off as a utility. And a lot of people wonder why we're not using like a third-party API-enabled, Wi-Fi-enabled charging station to get us the, the usage data for um, residential charging to have a program designed around that. And the answer I have is we wanted to pilot a program with a utility meter and have more in-house control of that program and, and not be so quick to use a third-party vendor to enable that. We wanted an experiment with what we could provide in-house with what we know best, and, and that's meters and, and our billing structure and our existing processes. So we leaned on that and developed a product with that. And we we don't want to exclude the other options. We, we're developing a demand response pilot program currently that will be similar to like a thermostat um, demand response program where during high peak events um, where it's really hot in the summer and the grid is under a lot of pressure, we can remotely turn off or dial down people's charging stations. And that's using charge points, API, Wi-Fi enabled residential charging stations. So we're, we're doing all of the above. We want to look at all approaches and figure out what's best for our community and our utility. And that may be the one that is most successful. It may be all of the above. We're still in pilot phase of all of those. So Results are still coming in, analysis needs to be done, recommendations need to be made, and we'll see what comes. Wait, just to clarify, you said the demand response you said the demand response program would only be for people's residential charging stations. It wouldn't affect the ones out and about. Uh, for the pilot program we are working on currently, it is residential. We've already demonstrated the ability to remotely turn off our public charging stations. That was an auto grid pilot we did many years ago. Um, that's kind of old news for Austin Energy. Do you know roughly what percentage of public charging stations Austin Energy owns? Because I remember Aaron saying that some of the car companies themselves own the infrastructure, at the very least Tesla definitely does. So like what, what do you know how, how much of that how much of that infrastructure is currently owned by Austin Energy and not just supplying power? Sure. So we own 113 level two charging stations, one DC fast charging station with more DC fast to come. We, we want to have a DC fast ownership model for the future. So that, that is where we are focusing our ownership efforts. All of these charging stations are on the plug in everywhere network. We have almost 500 stations on our plug in everywhere network. So the majority of these stations are actually owned by by private companies. They're they're on private private property, and they're owned and and repaired by the private company. Um, so we have you know HEB is involved, Samsung workplaces. Um, we have multifamily. I, I mean, uh, just countless participants in that program. And we assist with the, that ownership through rebates and the plug-in everywhere network. So we, we bring them onto our network, which enables the drivers to access the stations for 
the great low rate of $4.17 for unlimited access. And um, there's a, a maintenance component. We, we help maintain the stations, but, but the ownership and repairs are ultimately the responsibility of the private companies. I see. So if I'm a utility and, you know, my customers have made it clear that, like, hey, we, you know, we're, we're, we want electric vehicles, we're probably going to be buying them. So we need infrastructure in our city to support that. So me as the EV program lead at my utility, what is the first thing I need to take heavily under consideration when starting out these programs? Well, you want to gather your stakeholders. So you need, you need community support and stakeholder support. So, um, you know, you have a big meeting with, with your, um, your city manager, your, your mayor, your transportation department, your climate protection department, maybe some, you know, representatives of the community, like real estate or low income, for example. Bring them all together, serve them breakfast tacos, and get them talking about electric vehicles and get their support and you don't have to get all of their support. If you get one person's support, that's enough to gain some momentum for the programs. That's an interesting. That's an interesting way of looking at it. I would. Would the stakeholders agree with that assessment? That it's enough to go in with just one, even if there's just one person. Well, it's a start. Got to start somewhere, Dylan. Yeah. You sure do. And I mean, and I like the the breakfast taco uh, mm-hmm. bribe. So what? But. In the work you've done at Austin Energy, what are some complications or, or pitfalls or just general like advice that has really that's really changed the way you looked at developing these programs from when you started? Um, well, one important um, stakeholder community that you need to involve early on is the installer community. You really need to support them. They're the ones on the ground installing these charging stations. So. Um, they need to be educated and informed about the programs, and they will actually do a lot of the marketing for you. They have a lot of um, business to gain by people installing charging stations, so they will reach out to their trusted customers and and sell this this idea and concept. You said the installer community. I assumed that you that you Austin Energy in, uh, did the installation. You actually have there's actually mm-hmm businesses that do that for you. Interesting. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, we work with just the private contractor community to do the majority of these installations. DC Fast is a little different. That That is handled primarily from from Austin Energy. They do those installations. Um, it's, it's such a large undertaking with so many different parties involved. You really need the, the big utility to come in and and take care of that um it's just so much infrastructure and involvement but it is really interesting that you know just because there's this new new product that requires its own sort of infrastructure that that in and of itself creates this little uh just little cottage industry of supporting of supporting this so there's there's not only potential benefits for people driving electric vehicles, but also business opportunities for people who want to help support help support that. So I think that's really cool. But Dylan, that also rings true for solar and the you know companies that are capitalizing on solar installations. I think this is just kind of highlights how uh, these things impact our communities in more ways than and one. Um, but Lindsay, since Dylan did ask, you know, since he had that question around there being a, another layer of business to this, could you just walk us through kind of the the typical stakeholders that you are involved with? So you have, you know, the charging companies and then the utility itself. I'd imagine um, the city is involved in some way. But who are some of the stakeholders that you're primarily working with? Sure. So the permitting office is really important. The City of Austin Developmental Services Department is huge because they they do the permits and inspections to ensure safety. Um, the transportation department is huge because we put a lot of charging stations on public right of ways on for street side charging. So they're they're heavily involved with it. Um, within the city, we have the fleet department. They have an initiative to 
replace 330 of their high mileage vehicles to electric models. So they have a huge buy-in in this. Economic development is interested. Um, low to moderate income representatives are interested in, in, in equity and, and having electric vehicle infrastructure, you know, being equitable across the city. Um, our city representatives have buy-in, um, the mayor, um, who else? The Climate Protection Department. Um, we have local businesses that want to electrify their fleets and have um, business models that are uh, based on an electric platform, um, Maven, for example, they, they're, no lo- they're no longer offering the service in Austin, but that was an interesting business idea to have a, a ride-sharing service on the GM Bolt vehicle platform, and we are very supportive of that. Um, any, any business that comes to us with um, even like electric bike fleet fleet interest, we will support that. This just kind of reminds me of a conversation that I had uh, over 4th of July weekend with one of my friends. You know, I, I this, in my opinion, just highlights how much there needs to be more education around electric vehicles, the challenges of electric vehicles and the business of electric vehicles. One of my friends he he pretty much just says, I don't get it. Like, why can't we just put charging stations at every gas station and boom, like, there you go. You can charge the electric vehicles. And I was just like, well, it's just not, it's not that simple. And that's not the way that, that's not the best way to go about it. So thank you for kind of, you know, walking us through what may be, you know, basic steps to you. But I think it's very fundamental in helping people understand, you know, the real challenges around EVs. and hopefully invoke people to be passionate about solving them as well. So thank you for that. Definitely. One, one advice, point of advice that I have for developing an electric vehicle program, especially the, the public network side of things, is creating a solid data architecture from the beginning and, and really um, ensuring the accuracy of the data about the stations coming into your network portal, um, meaning like accurate location pinpoints of the station, accurate description of the customer category, um, really, really good records on the station owner and contacts because uh, it quickly grows and, and you don't always foresee the need of all of that data from the get-go, but being a program manager, you know, five five, six, seven years down the road from the creation of our program, I need access to good quality data to create charts and maps and, and materials to support um, presentations to our executives um, to really get our point across and to um, make useful data for our customers and just to really to make my, my job a lot easier to be able to pull accurate data from our network portal. It's very important. Can you give an example of just how, how the data helps you either refine or develop a program? Sure. Um, well, just for uh, station repairs, for example, we, we provide diagnostic repair services for our privately owned stations. So we send out our crew, our contracted maintenance crew, out to these stations that have potential problems and if they identify a problem and we need the station hosts to repair the station, we need to know the, the right person to contact. And so sometimes with, it, like with a lot of property management companies, there, there's turnover. The, the contact changes. So there needs to be some kind of tracking mechanism to, to keep updated contacts within your system. So develop a process for that. Um, uh, one one thing we're we're working on is is just working with our call center better to where whenever there's a change made on the main Austin Energy account, we can be notified of that, so we can have someone to contact for repairs. Um, uh, more, just um, 
like from a mapping standpoint, if I have a customer that's moving to Austin and they say, I, I need to live in an apartment and it has to be an apartment with an electric vehicle charging station because I drive an all electric vehicle. I want to be able to, within a matter of minutes, pull, just filter out my multifamily charging stations. And if the data was put in incorrectly when that station went on our network, I cannot accurately pull that map. And I'd be telling that person the wrong location. Um, like if it's a mixed uh, use retail multifamily, for example, and that, that charging station is only tagged as retail, then I'm, I'm missing a multifamily apartment to, to tell that customer about. And I don't need to be scrubbing that data every time I want to pull a report. Definitely don't. Well, Lindsay, thank you for coming on today and uh, walking us through the creation of uh, EV programs. It, like, like Aaron said, uh, for some it might that might seem it might seem a little rudimentary, but it's it's really interesting how you know how how these programs come together to make everything e to make everything easier on on the driver. And I think wait, what, what, I think based on everything we've discussed over the past couple of weeks uh it, it definitely seems like evs are only going to be more or only going to be more accessible and i think that's going to make your job both more interesting and probably easier so thank you very much for coming on and talking with us about that you're welcome thank you for having a podcast about it and having me on it <laughs> absolutely anytime uh aaron thanks for being on and for doing uh, some real on the ground uh capital J journalism on EVs for us. Thanks, Dylan. I am in full EV mode. If an EV drives by me on the street, I will do 180 degree turn to check out that license plate because I'm also very into EV vanity license plates right now. So, <laughs> What's the best one you've I'm, seen? Well, the best one I've seen uh, was... <laughs> Ohm, O-H-M, it was on a, I think, I-9, BMW I-9 in Waco, Texas. But, you know, I, I've seen some pretty good ones. I've seen one on a Tesla that said Charging. I've seen Tesla Love. Uh, I've just seen, I've seen quite a bit. I, what, somebody tweeted at me when I posted a picture of my, the last EV vanity license plate I saw, that uh, they saw an EV license plate that said Volts, Volkswagen. <laughs> I like that. Um, but glad to have Lindsay on and, and continue this discussion about electric vehicles. My favorite vanity play is uh, I saw it on a Tesla Roadster LOL gas. <laughs> that's, that's where it's. <laughs> oh, that's, that's nice. Uh, so if you're interested in, uh, listen, in locating more of the stuff we did on EVs, you can find our research and media at etsinsights.com. You can find us on social media at Aaron Hardick, at DY Lockwood, at Z Prime underscore research. Uh, we've got the Solar Storage Fest coming up this, this August. For more information on that, you can check out ssfest.co. That's ssfest.co. My name is Dylan, and we'll see you all next time.